Hello there, I'm Miranda Gretton and this is Take a Moment with NCHC, the show where we talk to you and your colleagues about experiences that affect you. Listen on your drive between patients or in your downtime, whenever you get the chance to take a moment. In this episode, we're talking about disability, but specifically the topic of beyond reasonable adjustment and what that means for our staff and patients. Hi, I'm Jess Brunner. I am the Advanced Nurse Practitioner and Clinical Lead within the ADHD Nursing Service within Community Paediatrics. And I'm Nick Bowman and I'm the Freedom to Speak Up Guardian for the Trust and I'm also a Community Learning Disability Nurse. Thank you so much for joining me today. We're here to talk about UK Disability History Month and there is a theme to this which is Beyond Reasonable Adjustment. So talking about disability, most of us know at least one person who is living with a disability. We use a lot of different language as well now. There's there's phrases like neurodiverse, neurotypical, differently able, hidden, invisible, visible disabilities. Do you think all of this makes a difference to the way that we look at disability? The language we use is really, really important for professionals, but also for the people that we're talking about. I'll tell you a little bit about my journey. So... So I started nursing in the late 80s when people with learned disabilities, that that wasn't the term that was being used then. I won't use it because it's not a very nice one. But I I walked into an institution, had five or six hundred people, all with learned disabilities, all effectively still kind of shut away from the rest of the world. There was no necessity to interact with the kind of wider world and no desire. So in terms of understanding and knowledge from the rest of uh, you know, society, there was very little because all these people were kind of locked away. And that was the same for people with mental health problems. There were still large institutions around. And through the 90s and more into the 2000s, those kind of institutions closed. People lived more in the community, which was a a fantastic thing to see. And the story around people's disabilities changed because of that, because people with a disability were more accessible to everyone. So everyone else could see how fantastic they were and we shouldn't have been locking them up. I would completely second that, although my uh, career journey is much shorter so far over the last kind of 12, 13 years of of, uh, mental health nursing. When I started nursing um, in some of the larger institutions in London, such as the Bethlehem Hospital, it was very much moving across to the recovery model, kind of working with people out in the community and gaining a better understanding about people's needs and really kind of what empowerment meant for people understanding their own mental health or disability needs, but also how the world understood them as well and it's kind of been a learning curve for society as a whole most definitely we've seen it over the last 10 years where we talk a lot more around diversity and kind of building on our strengths embracing diversity more so than I think we did before and working with young people with ADHD and autism that's something that We see a lot more promoted within a school environment and that language is seems more readily available on young people's and also parents lips now as well which is encouraging that's a really good point isn't it about teaching our young people to have the confidence to talk about what they're experiencing and and maybe having a name for it i mean is that something that is better for a child to have so they can go through their life knowing where to research something or what to talk about I have young people, some of whom really value that label because it gives a framework. It gives an understanding of, oh, hold on, I'm not different. It's just my people think or act like this. And it may be that I 
learn how to express or other people need to learn how my brain works. For others, the label can still feel quite stigmatizing and there's a lot of discussion around the pros and cons of labels in neurodevelopmental needs. We do still use labels and I think people are understanding more around ADHD and autism and tics and Tourette's as well. People are learning more about, especially over lockdown with things like TikTok and other social media platforms coming to a forefront. They're more visible now where people were kind of promoting their differences. And I guess in our clinic with young people, whilst language is really important, we tend to think, especially with the younger ones, what are your superpowers or what are your strengths, which might not translate so well into an adult context, but for kids taking a strengths-based approach, like what are the things you and your brain are really good at? What are the things we need to work on and let others know about that you need help with? seems to be the kind of most important route to open up that conversation. And that's absolutely the definition of going beyond reasonable adjustment, isn't it? That's not just saying I need help with something. That's saying, actually, I can offer something. It's saying I've got these strengths that make me amazing. Well, and we t- we talk a lot in our clinics, especially the school environment, the kind of square pegs, round holes model in that for lots of our young people and actually a lot of our staff as well, you have people who are creative and think in ways outside the mainstream, which 100% needs to be celebrated because you get a completely differing viewpoint to the norm, which is kind of what takes us a step forward and helps broaden your own view and perspective. And I think what it comes down to is that curiosity, which then feeds into understanding. It's asking people how they want to be treated, how they want to be spoken to and about, rather than assuming. And I think that's the difference, isn't it, to how far we've come. The kind of power has shifted and it's moved away from kind of clinicians and those kind of people. And we're trying to put it back to the individuals. So so if there are labels, like Jess said, it's really personal. Some people love them, some people hate them, but it's, it's encouraging them to own it and do what they want with it learning disabilities loads of debate about labels but what's really good is that the people having those debate are the people with the disabilities it's the people themselves deciding how they want to use that language obviously you know we have a range of staff with disabilities as well and it's 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 applying the same kind of technique and model really of being one of supportive to support them to make the, the kind of the adjustments that they may need in order to carry out their roles. And there's so many varied roles for people these days that surely, you know, as as a big employer, we can make lots of kind of adjustments for people. There's lots of people in the community now using the sunflower lanyard, which I think previously we didn't see that much of. And it kind of felt like, oh, if you knew what it meant, then you were in the know. But now that's widely promoted. And for a lot of our young people, especially those with social communication needs or who find it harder to express or put a name to what it is that they feel wearing that lanyard, because it's a choice, it really reduces some of that anxiety around having to explain how they may need to operate. And we've had a lot of positive reports back of kids saying, well, actually, I went into the shop and I noticed that I'd been with that shopkeeper before and was treated one way. And this time I went in and I wore my lanyard and they asked what I needed or what help I might have needed or they addressed me differently. Which for a child to have that relationship with an adult without having to speak anything or put a name to anything is huge in terms of 
being acknowledged and validated mm. without having to justify yourself. For, for somebody who doesn't have a disability, who sees or, so a lanyard uh, or maybe works with somebody who's wearing a lanyard or sees a patient wearing a lanyard, what kind of questions could they ask? What, what sort of thing could I ask without being, say, patronising or offensive? Well, I, I think that's a really good question. And I, I think it depends what setting or context you're in. I, I guess it's as you would be with anyone else. It's more that it's you as the other person taking part in that conversation need to think about actually, how do I think about my interaction here? We're not putting this on the person with the disability. It's as a society, it's our role to adjust and understand. And it may be that if we're asking someone, oh, how can I help you? Or is there anything I can do to help with this today? You're opening up a non-judgmental conversation. And I don't think it's on that person necessarily. It's on us to think about, actually, do I need to change or adjust in this situation? Or do I need to open up a conversation to let that person express what they may need here? And it might be that they don't need anything, but they're making you aware that if there was a situation or something changed suddenly, or like with our young people, if they're in a situation where there was suddenly a loud noise, they may react very differently. And previously, you may not have realised that there was anything that may alter their behaviour in that situation. And I suppose it's an outward awareness, really, that actually you may respond with kindness or support rather than judgment and just knowledge just knowledge that something is there you can't necessarily judge someone for something you can't see but they might have judged some behavior thinking it was one thing and actually something so you're absolutely right I think it's it's opening up these conversations so that people feel more confident to know when they see a lanyard not to think well that person needs to tell me what they need it's just automatically knowing how to handle that situation and I guess that will become more comfortable with time. But we are already seeing such a shift, aren't we? The fact that your children are coming to you and saying that's already happening, that people are already knowing how to have those conversations is fantastic. I think what those those lanyards and other outward signs for someone who has what would be classically called a hidden disability, i.e. that, you know, someone hasn't got a broken leg when they're a leg in a plaster or in a wheelchair. If you see the lanyard, you just stop and think about how do I want my interaction with this person to go? What adjustments do I need to potentially make? And you're not going to get it right all the time because you may not know, but it just makes you think as a person to do that. We are opening up these conversations and we are saying to people, you know, there is the, all of this new language. We're not just lumping everybody into disabled. You know, we're now talking in, in such a different way about being disabled. In terms of how you treat your patients who are living with disabilities, how has that inclusion kind of come into play in your daily role as a, as a clinician? I mean, I would say it's all about inclusion, trying to get inclusion, trying to get people to feel that they are the valued member of society that we all want them to be, you know. When the COVID pandemic started, no one really knew where it was going to go. So there was lots of people suffering really poorly with their, their kind of mental health and their ability to try and suss out what is going on in the world and trying to do that whilst they're on their own. So for us as nurses, whilst people in kind of care homes were saying stay away, those people that we support living on their own, we really had to up our game to make sure that they probably got far more support than we ordinarily would have given. I mean, that leads us quite nicely on to Jess, because you, I mean, you won the EDP Star of Norfolk Award 2020 for your work during the pandemic. And you, one of the things you did, if I'm right in saying, I know, huge congratulations, by the way. 
part of that was that you were going out more often to see your patients so it was so our our clinic is is community based and um so at that point we had three nurses serving around um a thousand young people so when the pandemic hit you, you obviously saw the gaps arise between mental health care social care and community health and families especially we see a lot of young people in the ADHD nursing clinic have comorbid conditions such as autism spectrum disorder some people are coming home from specialist schools which they board at their routine has been completely stripped with no idea of when normality is going to resume it was just about stepping up it was maintaining that clinical presence. We do go out into the community at times, but we tend to be clinic-based, but it was more being on hand for as many hours as we could manage during the day, take those calls and support parents or children and young people with how they were feeling. And as a children's mental health nurse by background, we saw a huge spike in anxiety, which that was something that as a population, we probably had a shared experience of and that loneliness and isolation. A, a young man actually nominated me who had to come back from his specialist boarding school. And whilst he didn't feel able to speak every week, we tried a little bit, but it was just being on the other end of the phone for, for his mum at a consistent time period, offering space to talk. I'm sure as Nick did as well, across the trust, I think everyone, you just step up, you have to, there's no, you just respond how you would want your own family to be treated. And I was very fortunate that for this family, they felt that that was worthy of suggesting to the EDP for an award. But I saw this across my team, across my colleagues and further in the trust. So it's definitely not just me who upped the ante in terms of patient care, but it was very, very nice to be recognised for it. And the young man was very excited checking the paper to see who had won. But I think that just comes down to nursing as a whole. In that crisis, we had people on the front line. As a mental health clinician, you're kind of thinking, well, what do we do? And you just you just bridge the gaps where you can. I'm interested to talk about our staff who may be living with disabilities. You know, the result of the pandemic and there is a knock on effect to working from home in a negative way in that if someone turns their camera off for a prolonged period of time, we don't necessarily know that they're OK. So there's that sort of a check in element to working from home and working remotely. What's your opinion on that with for people who are living with disabilities in terms of, of working remotely? I mean, I think for, for our trust, which is quite a big employer organisation, you know, it showed a massive degree of flexibility at the start, didn't it? Because it did a complete U-turn on how we delivered all of our services, basically, for eons. And and the NHS is notoriously bad at kind of uh, making change. It's generally very slow, but it was forced upon us. We did it really quickly. And I think, I think we've all got used to that. You're right about if everyone turns their cameras off and we can't see them, how do we check in? But then... You know, there's ways of doing that, isn't it? That you can do that on a one-to-one basis. People may be more inclined to have cameras on rather than in big groups and stuff like that. There's ways around it. And I think what everyone is learning is that it's about being flexible. Lots of people with ADHD and autism in the workplace may be masking a lot of their symptoms, forcing themselves to be social, social. kind of tolerate or trying to focus and engage for long periods of of time with a series of distractions that can then negatively impact on mental well-being or feeling like you've got high work loads or even kind of risk of burnout because you're putting in 
150% in, in the work environment. Whereas if you're then shifting or have the option to change that environment, there are going to be some people who work better in the office. Um, I am definitely one of those. But there are going to be some people who, when you can take off that mask and kind of be yourself at home, get on with your work to the standards that you know you can do, you remove a lot of that pressure. And when we're thinking about the impact on mental health and well-being, that flexibility that Nick was talking about is imperative. You can give a lot of yourself just trying to manage or cover up your condition or feeling like you're not good enough or those imposter syndromes that you might get, which we all experience, but may be elevated because of a diagnosis such as ADHD or autism. So in having those open conversations and being flexible with having some days in and out of the office, what equipment is available as an example, because we, again, NCHNC did a really good job of, we got chairs if we needed them, that sort of thing. All of a sudden, everything moved home if we had to. I guess it's how do we take that forward? Because historically, someone may not have applied for that job because they were sat in an open plan office or had to go through a busy reception area on the way in. The last staff survey showed that more people in our trust identify as having a disability than they have disclosed to to kind of HR or their managers. I would imagine that part of that, you know, they're a bit fearful of, well, if I do disclose that, what's going to happen? Some people may see that they have a long-term condition, but it doesn't affect their work. So actually, why do I need to tell anyone? What we need to try and do as good employees is say, we'll give you an open, honest space if you want to have that discussion and try and encourage it. We were talking at the beginning about how language has changed and how we've changed a lot in how we're opening up. Unfortunately, the reality is that some people may have had negative experiences or witnessed negative things happening when people have opened up. And that's exactly what we're trying to address and we're trying to shift. Quite often people feel a lot of stigma in terms of disclosing this side of things. And actually, when you add in significant stress like a pandemic, things come to the surface. You need to be confident in your employers to know that that response is going to meet your needs. How do we want it to look in the future? I mean, Jess, you've talked about the fact that the language we use is is different around disabilities in general, but also the forum in which someone discloses something doesn't have to be so formal. It can be a slightly different way. So it's about us maybe as an organisation reassessing how we encourage people to come forward. So what else would you want to see then moving forward in the future for beyond reasonable adjustment to be a real mainstream thing in our trust? When you're going to disclose something, it's about the relationship you have with that person, isn't it? You have to have some kind of safe relationship. So what we want to encourage is that our managers act and operate in a way that they create that safety. So they're the people that you want to go on the kind of mental health first aid training. They're the ones you want to have more of an insight and to be able to think about how their behaviour affects other people. And it's not just about filling shifts, getting staff in place to be able to do X, Y and Z tasks. I think it's also about being longer sighted in our thinking, because like Nick said, you can be thinking about filling the shifts, getting the clinic sorted in the short term. If your staff are all off sick because they're burnt out or people have needs which haven't been recognised or not been met, or you can't retain staff because they're not being looked after and cared for or don't have that safe space. In the longer term, you're going to fall short. Being able to open up those conversations that if we prioritise our workforce's 
well-being and needs and we adapt to it that builds trust and that builds a safety net and that means that if there is a situation where someone really does need help or they need to disclose something you've already developed that relationship and then it's re- it's reciprocated I appreciate in a large organization that can feel a lot and we we need to meet patients needs but I, I think it's that balancing act of when we are short-staffed how do we prioritize people's needs and adapt to those whilst delivering a service I wish I had the answer to that <laughs> you know if we if we don't look after our staff then who's going to look after the patients perhaps in the past we focused too much on on a manager waiting for a staff member to come and present their condition to the line manager to say I have this condition and I need you to do this whereas now what we're saying is Actually, as a line manager, as a leader, be prepared for the fact that you may be working with a whole team of people who have really complex needs and actually they're not willing to disclose them just yet because, like you say, we haven't created that safe space, that safe environment for them to come and tell you. Yeah, and that's only going to work if we give those people the skills, isn't it, to to kind of go and ask some of those questions and perhaps prod in a gentle way about people. But if you start from a position of knowing, you know, if you manage 40 people, you can guarantee there's going to be some issues within those 40 people that you're going to be needed to be supportive about. I think it's important as leaders to also start that conversation. So if I'm with my team and I don't ever talk about my mental well-being or my physical well-being, it's not going to encourage anyone else to. And it's about allowing a certain level of professional vulnerability in order to kind of start that conversation okay to say that you're going through something that you're struggling because actually that's then 10 times more likely to make somebody open up and even just the term like we talked at the beginning about the language we use you know 10 years ago everyone was a manager and now we talk in terms of people being leaders and and even that is just a big change because are you managed or are you led there's a very different kind of feel about that I wanted to cycle back to something you said, Jess, about responding how you would want your family to be treated. I think for anybody who doesn't live with a disability or doesn't necessarily know somebody with a disability in their sort of close circle of family or friends, all you need to really do is think about how you would respond if it was a family member or a friend. You know, it's it's showing that kindness and that, that openness. Yeah. I always say to kind of any student nurses if you start from a position of kindness you're not going to go too far wrong and then you can add your layers of professional and clinical knowledge on top of that to support someone but don't forget at the bottom of everything is kindness and compassion thank you for listening to take a moment with nchc if you've enjoyed this podcast please visit the podcast intranet page to leave a comment and for details of our other episodes You can also follow NCHC on all social media channels.